This is My Rank Edges Busted, a podcast produced by Agriculture Victoria. I'm Gemma Pearl, and here we talk about all things climate and farming. This episode is number two of our discussion with Cam Nicholson around decision-making. In this part of the discussion, Cam explains to Gray and Anderson, Dale Gray and I, the practical format he uses on his property to make decisions. So it's called a, well, called a decision matrix. I first saw it from a farmer in South Australia, Barry Mudge. And Barry had a very, well, I call simple one of these about how much crop does he sow at the start of the year? Cause they're in a pretty marginal sort of rainfall zone. And so deciding how much crop to sow at that time was a, a really important decision he had to make. And he just stepped it out in this very simple sort of table where the first column was just what are those critical things we need to think about? And then in each of those critical considerations or factors that he had that he was thinking about, he then said, when would I think differently? So if it was um, what the seasonal forecast was, might be one of the, the critical factors that he's considering. He'd be saying, I'd think differently about how much I might sow if the seasonal forecast was it's going to be well above average and it's going to be wetter. And he'd think differently if the seasonal forecast was saying it's going to be well below average. He'd adjust his decision accordingly. But he'd also look at other things such as uh, the amount of moisture that he had stored in the soil at the time of sowing because he knew that that moisture was money in the bank. So if, for example, he had more um, stored soil moisture plus a seasonal forecast that was looking very favourable, those two things added together give him more confidence that he probably should pin his ears back and go for it in a big way compared to if they were both on the um, less favourable side. But of course, as you go through decisions like that, you'll find some that might be in the positive and some that might be on the negative. And so we need to balance those up. So an important part about building this matrix is also then putting some weightings or what I call some scores on or values on those different considerations and those different tipping points. And by creating a simple table that's got those factors where we think differently and then the the values for those different areas that we think differently, we can then start looking at different combinations and seeing what sort of scores we get. And you might say, well, if I get a score of above X number, say it's 15 out of 30 or 20 out of 30 or whatever else, I'd make this decision. If the score was below that, then I might, I'd make a different decision. And it's a useful way of starting to get that weighting and that balance between the different factors that we need to consider. And at the end of the day, helping form a, a decision. And I suppose it's one of these where you want to practice what you preach. So we've got a number of these for the farm. Um, at home and one of the ones that you just alluded to there is we have a decision matrix we've created that we pull out at the start of each September. So end of August, early September, we have a decision point there in the matrix of do we sell stock? So this is before we've hit the spring flush, but we know in early September, we should be making decisions then about whether we should um, be selling stock or whether we're happy to retain stock. And so our matrix will include things like how much feed we've got in front of us, what the seasonal forecast is like, what condition the animals are in, uh, what the stored soil moisture is, uh, what the current and future livestock prices are predicted to be and so on. So we have five or six of these, what we consider to be critical factors that we should consider at that point in time. And every 
September, we bring that out and we give it a score. So over the last couple of years, we haven't sold any stock. In fact, we've probably made more fodder than we usually would have because there were so many factors in our favour stacking up going into spring that it made the decision to hang on to stock the right decision to be making or a good decision to make. Now, in hindsight, that's exactly the way it's worked out and things are all very smiley. If I go back to 2018, I think it was, which now part of the world was really tight, um, we ran through exactly the same process. The scores came out very differently and we ended up selling steers that we usually sell to a feedlot. We sold them much earlier and the feedlot were happy to take them earlier than we normally would have, have sold them. When we got to the usual selling time uh, for this feedlot and everybody's trying to get stock into the feedlot because feed had run out for everybody because spring had been pretty full, the feedlots were saying, no, sorry, we're full. You'll have to go somewhere else. So we were able to get in just that little bit earlier because we'd made that decision a little bit earlier. When you look back on it, all the signs were there. There were enough signs in the favour of saying, hang on, you better offload some of these stock compared to the next year when, in fact, the reverse conditions were there. The same matrix could be used. The same decision points could be used. same scoring system could be used. We just this year came up with a different score than we did two years earlier and we made different decisions. Now, I consider that to be a, a good way of trying to apply this uh, this information. Another one that we've got is at the farmer, a decision of do I need to grow more feed in for winter? And we make that at the end of May. So we don't really care when the autumn break is. You know, we don't agonise over that. We just know at the start, depending on the number of stock that we've got on, we know by the end of May we need at least X amount of feed across the farm to carry animals through for winter, which is a, a reliable but low growth period, but that's when we're lambing and calving, so it's harder to make those decisions of offloading stuff at that point in time. So we've got this decision at the end of May, and we make decisions on whether, you know, we're going to put gibberellic acid out, nitrogen out, possibly sell down some stock, but we're selling them much earlier than when they're lambing or calving. And, and that's useful because you make the decision then, you get the full response out of it before you're in the depths of winter and it just helps you through. And it changes every year. The part of it is do we have condition on the animal's backs and therefore not having as much feed isn't as much of a problem because the animals are fat compared to if the animals are pretty skinny, skinny and we don't have much feed, then we're making a different decision about how much we grow. So, you know, it varies from year to year. And we've just found having just a few of these at critical times, and every year we just pull them out. Sometimes they, they're no-brainers. Everything's stacking up right. And you think, well, I'm not bothering doing this. But it's really useful for when you start to get to those sort of uncertain and tight years of which decision to make. There's a couple of advantages, I reckon, in doing this sort of approach. The first one is... If you can think about these decisions before the time comes, because you tend to be in a better space and you tend to think these are the things we should consider. Now, when you're in the thick of it, some of the things like, oh, I just heard the seasonal forecast and it's going to be such and such, oh, you know, that's bad. It may be a less than favourable comment, but if everything else, a whole lot of other factors are stacking up in your favour, still doing what you were going to do can still be a good decision. So the first one is create them beforehand and think of those four or five, what I 
you know, consider to be those critical points during the year for your farm business that you've got to make and create those before you're in the thick of them. That's the first one. Second one is if you can document it, in other words, put it down on paper, A, it makes it transparent so you can see it, and importantly, other people can join in. And I know when Fiona and I put these together, the two of us doing it and having that conversation about what's important and where are those tipping points and what the weighting is, is is really valuable because you actually get a better perspective because you've got more than one brain working on that decision. And it also means that if we make the decision, we've made the decision collectively because we've both agreed that's yeah, they're the things that we should be considering. So I do a bit of lecturing at Marcus Oldham, and I remember one of the students one year saying he went home, so we teach this stuff, went home and did it with his folks, and he came back and he said, the first time in my life I actually understand why the folks makes, make the decisions they do. And I thought it was really insightful that by putting it down on paper and making, making people sort of think about what are the things that are driving the decision, it became a whole lot clearer for other people in that farming business about why the decisions were being made and what was being considered. And so it's useful in that transparency one. And the last bit is it's then useful in hindsight. So if we've gone through and we've scored this and it's suggested we make this decision and we go ahead and make that decision and it doesn't turn out to be the right decision, we can go back and look at that and go, where did we go wrong on this? Was there something that we should have anticipated that we could have known about that the information was there that we haven't included? Or did we put too much emphasis on this factor which skewed everything else? And in fact, where we shouldn't be putting as much weight on that, we should be putting more weight on some of these other ones. Or is it just all the information was telling us, yep, this is what should be happening and stuff just happened? You know, best forecast in the world said it was going to be really wet and it didn't turn out to be wet at all. But it was the best information we had at that point in time. Therefore, we still made the right decision, even though the outcome might have been what we wanted. Yeah, great. Yeah, they're bringing the decision out so people can see the core components. As a team sport for a farm, certainly that that's a whole other side to it, isn't it? Just trying to help people understand and discuss this decision rather than just one person making one thing and the rest being a bit mystified or all cranky. Absolutely, but it, but it allows to bring other other experts in as well. I remember doing one for a, with a farmer and he had his crop advisor, his livestock advisor and the two farm workers plus himself involved. Um, and it was a decision about changing, uh, potentially changing lambing time in a business that had you know, a few thousand ewes. So it was going to be quite a big strategic decision to make for that business. Being able to have all the different experts contribute a bit to the overall decision was really valuable of things you should consider. So the stock guy could see the livestock side of it, but didn't have any idea about the cropping side of it, you know, and what influence that might have on the cropping part of the business and vice versa. And the, the farm manager, the guy who was doing the livestock, he said, well, I help you out sowing. If we bring lambing time forward by a month, I'm not going to be around for sowing you know, in your crop operation. And so by being able to weigh up a whole lot of these different factors and having those different people contribute, the actual decision was much better informed, looked at it from multiple perspectives. The other thing that that allows you to do is that there's a lot of information, as you said at the start, Graham, and there's a lot of experts out there. 
if you've got a decision matrix well set out, you actually know what information you need. And so you can block out some of the stuff that doesn't really matter, that's noise. Because you know in your decision, I only need to know these five or six things. Just wondering, in the decision stuff, how do you try and sort out things that are unknowable, such as forecasts, you know, whether it's for prices or for, you know, the rainfall in the next three months? How do you sort of try and treat them in decision making, the unknowables versus the stuff that you can actually go out and measure? Any, any tips on, on how to where to use forecasts, whether they're weather or market or whatever? So I need to know what the seasonal forecast is. So I either need to have an expert who can tell me or I need to develop my skills in that area so I can interpret the information that people like Dale, yourself and Gemma are putting out in the right way. I need to do the same thing with markets, you know, and so on. So you, you can understand what information do I need to help inform that decision at any point in time and what information is just noise. So for us, if I go back to that one in, in springtime about do we offload stock or not, I need to know what prices are doing and both the forward forecasts. And so we keep a very close eye on that coming up to that decision so that we've got that information in hand. We need to know what our soil moisture is. We need to know what the condition of the stock are. So those skills, condition scoring of animals, having a moisture probe in that we use to understand what our moisture profile is like, they make sense to have them now and they make sense to collect that information because it's informing the decision we need to make. Otherwise, we can get a whole lot of these tools and think it's all useful information. But if you don't have a process to put it into, then it can become really, really confusing. So, so to me, the unknowables is just the degree of risk that it brings into the decision. Because some of that stuff, you can, you can get information that's, I'd, I'd say, relatively accurate. Let's say amount of moisture that you've got in your soil. Because you can, you know, we can go and, and physically measure that and we've got tools to be able to measure those sort of things. The ones that are less knowable and you're, in a sense, taking a punt on, this is where, well, a few things. First of all, you've got to recognise that they should be included. If they're unknowable and you think, I'm not really going to know what that is with a high degree of certainty at the time I've got to make the decision, it doesn't mean they shouldn't be included in your consideration. And I've seen a few times people going, oh, I just don't know what that'll be, so I'll forget about thinking about it. When in fact, no, it should actually be part of that decision that you need to make. But more importantly, it's where your tipping points come into this. So when you've got unknowables, and depending on the amount of risk that you want to take on, you might say, unless it's really, really wet, you know, I would only think that way if it's really, really wet. Otherwise, all other possible scenarios, I'll think this way and I'll be a bit more conservative about it. So those tipping points are a good way of being able to build a level of, let me say, risk appetite or your tolerance to risk into the decision that you're going to make. And so I do it that way. I also think about it from a weighting point of view. You know, when I spoke about there were different numbers or weightings that you put on it to show the relative importance of each of these sort of factors. Those unknown ones, while they shouldn't be ignored, may not have the same level of influence or you're not prepared to give them the same level of influence because they are too unknown. And so that that factor is, is reduced to some extent. So I think it's important that you don't ignore them. It's just, in a sense, the, the weighting that you put on them. You know, how important should that be in my overall decision? 
Uh, probably not. But there are times when, as you said, there are a number of things that are going to line up. number of drivers, climate drivers, are all going to be in the same position. And you think, oh, you know, there's a pretty strong sense now, pretty good vibe now that such and such is going to happen. That's when it should drive your decision um, in the positive or the negative, depending on the way that the climate might be sitting. But again, the, the climate is one part of it, but you may risk it on an average or a, a, a tight climate forecast if you had feed in front of you and the price of animals were going through the roof. And probably, Cam, it'd be fair to say, whether it's markets, and, and Dale, you can pipe in too, but it's not always the same each year for some of those. Like there are some seasons where you have much higher confidence about the direction of which the season might take or the or the market might take, isn't it? So it's not like it's it's not like it's the same every time you go and make a decision. It's just that some years there's a lot more information to make you more confident and other years there isn't. So Dale probably what every second or third year the seasonal forecasts are, are really telling you something to pay attention to. Would that be fair? Something like that. Like we'd expect one of those climate drivers to appearing, you know, one every four years, I suppose. And in the last 10 or 15, there's probably been a bigger number of them than that. So we're probably seeing a bit more variability. But um, it's, yeah, for a large part of the time, the climate is doing not much that's very predictable. So, you you know, you're better off spending your efforts thinking about other things. What I'm interested to know, Cam, is that when people are writing up one of these matrices, no one probably has got an idea where to start in terms of those weightings. You got any sort of thought process as to how you do? You just make them all equal to start with, and then see what happens. Where do you start contemplating that? Now the seasonal forecast not that more important, but gee, soil moisture that that's critical. So there's a couple of things, Dale, which is a nice sort of segue. We to help people in the the process that I suggest you go through. There's a couple of things. There's a a video, or rather. Um, amateurish video that uh, I put together that features Joan and I and this example that I've been talking about about the, the decision in, in springtime or early spring, late winter, early spring. So if you, if you just type in decision matrix and SFS, Southern Farming Systems, there's a short YouTube clip on how we go about that process. We've also created a thing called the decision wizard. So if you just type into decision wizard in your search engine it'll come up with that and it will take you through the the steps in building a decision matrix like i've been talking about and there's also a number of examples in there as well on the on a public library so if you wanted to see some other examples of what people have done you can go in and get that coming specifically to your question about how do you put the weightings on it what I'd suggest to people is once you've got your your critical factors, the five or six critical things that you reckon must be part of your decision, first thing I get people to do is rank them. So I say, which one of those would you put the most weighting or the most emphasis on? And so a simple ranking is a good way of, of starting to, to do that process. And then I usually count up the number of critical factors we've got. So let's say if we've got five critical factors, I just multiply it by two and I say the maximum score any one of those critical factors could get is 10. And I start off from that and then that gives me a relative opportunity to give lower scores to some of those other critical factors as you go through. So that's probably a, a quick way of, of explaining how I might put a bit of a ranking on that. 
I usually look at the so if we take each of those critical factors and I look at the the least favourable tipping point, I usually give them scores of zero. And so once you've got a top point and a bottom point in there, then we start looking at what those values might be in between. But ranking them is a useful first step, and you can do that in the decision wizard. It asks you to rank them as one of the steps, and then it will automatically give you a suggested scores for them. I think what I also like about this process is that the ability to do a, you know, what if analysis. I suppose if there if there is something that's unknown and it's got a ranking, you're ranking it quite highly. You really don't know. Well, you can play with the numbers, I suppose, Cam. You can put in this is this is going to happen or it won't happen at all, and just see how the sensitivity is in the analysis to what you think's important may not turn out to be the case. Yeah. Uh, another um, really good way of doing that, Dale, is that, I, and that's the last bit in the decision wizard, is um, scenario testing. And I say to people, think back to a, a previous decision you've made, the previous time when you've had to make this decision. Answer the questions uh, or give scores to those critical factors as it was in that time when you had to make that decision. Then look at what the suggested decision is as part of that. A, does that fit with your gut feel that that's the right decision? But secondly, in hindsight, would it have helped inform what you should have done? Because the, the beauty of hindsight is you know the outcome. And if you know the outcome, the decision matrix should be helping us to support make those right decisions more often than not. So if you know that, gee, under this circumstance back in 2016, we should have done such and such, go through and think back to 2016, score it or do those scenarios, or think of that scenario and do the scoring based on 2016 and then say, did that help inform my decision? And if it's saying, oh, you should have done this, and you think, no, in hindsight, we should have done the exact opposite, there's something not quite right in those either scores you've given or weighting you've given, or there's something that's missing. So it's a way of using um, various, I suppose, iterations of it to try and get it better. Is there anywhere people can go to get a bit of a look at them, to get get a start? Where would you send people? So you got the YouTube video. Yep. So the YouTube video, and if you, you type in, as I said, Decision Wizard, it will take you through that. I've also been involved in a project with, uh, Southern Farming Systems and another a number of partners, including AgVic, which is what we've called My Farm Dashboard. So it's a dashboard that allows you to look at all of these different bits of information. So what we've tried to do is we know there are a number of critical factors in a lot of decisions. How can we easily access that information? So the My Farm Dashboard, which will be publicly available, has got the decision matrix plus other information including stuff around seasonal forecasts, including stuff around uh, historic prices. So you can understand where that price sits relative to where it's been many years ago. We're also putting some other information in there on, on uh, satellite pasture covers, new generation satellites that have been flying around as different bits of information to help inform a decision. And on that dashboard, there's also access to the decision matrix and some other instructional material uh, with that as well. So if you're thinking about this decision, your decision matrix can be in one part of it and then the information needed to inform that, you can just bring those various tiles in and they'll sit there ready for you as you start you know, thinking about the decision. So what is the seasonal forecast for the next three months? 
how have I been tracking? What is my soil moisture at the moment? Where are prices sitting relative, say, to the last five years for the commodities I've got? We really appreciate Cam joining us on not one, but two episodes. Dale, Graham and I definitely enjoyed spending time with Cam, better understanding the decision-making process. In the show notes, you can find more information and links to decision-making content and the Decision Matrix product. You can also get in contact with us at the.break at agriculture.vic.gov.au. Thank you for listening to My Rain Gauge is Busted. For more episodes in this series, find us and follow wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment or rating and share this with your friends and family. All information is accurate at the time of release. Contact Agriculture Victoria or your consultant before making any changes on farm. This podcast was developed by Agriculture Victoria and the Tribe. O-S-O-I-N-S-S-T And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date, get the break. Oh, this bloke Dale, he's richy dick. He knows about the subtropical ridge. The science comes in a secret code. But he knows about the southern annular mode. Well, this SST anomaly lead us to a death cell of one, two, three. The Nino 3 and Nino 3.4. Well, I've never heard of these terms before about SOINSSTs. And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date, get the break. Or keep your eyes out for Enso. Will it rain then? If so, when so? The farmers need you to be specific. What's happening out in the Pacific? Well, westerly wind bursts blow away. All our hopes of that rainy day. And will this year bring an El Nino? Come on, tell us, Dale. Because we have to know about SOIs and SSDs. Someone please explain to me. Stay up to date. Get it right. Oh, S O I and S S T. And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me. Stay up to date. Get it right.